If 2020 is a year of firsts, the massive movement for racial justice doesn't quite count. While perhaps unprecedented in size and scope, it owes to a movement that for centuries has sought to right one of our country's foundational wrongs. Michael Eric Dyson has been a leading voice in that movement for much of his life. An ordained Baptist minister at 19, he came to prominence in the 1990s as a civil rights advocate and scholar. He now teaches sociology at Georgetown University, soon to be moving to Vanderbilt University, offers political analysis on MSNBC, and counts more than 20 books to his name. In this episode of Influencers, Dyson joins me to discuss this year's racial reckoning, the response from corporate America, and how the country's racial politics will change after Donald Trump leaves office. Welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Michael Eric Dyson, who is a professor of sociology at Georgetown University. We'll be going to Vanderbilt University, MSNBC, political analyst and author of the new book, Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. Michael, nice to see you. Great to see you as well, my friend, and it's great to be on your show. Thank you very much. So the new book, Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America, is written as letters to murdered African Americans. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the structure of the book and, and why you wanted to do the piece, the, the, the work this way? Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to write letters uh, to these murdered martyrs. Um, and in a sense, not simply talk about them, but speak to them a kind of uh, rhetorical intimacy through the epistolary form, letters, uh, that allow me to sp speak out loud, think out loud, talk, talk out loud about what happened to them, where we are, to commune with them, so to speak, not in a kind of loosey-goosey spiritualist way, but in an ancestral recognition way. And many of them recently arrived ancestors, Breonna Taylor, uh, Sandra Bland, the Reverend Clemente Pinckney, uh, Hadia Pendleton, and some much older like Emmett Till. So I wanted to think out loud, talk about the issues that confronted them, the issues that continue to confront us, and in communing with them, talking with them, talking to them about what happened after they died, uh, to in a way give a progress report of the soul of Black America and to figure out how we move forward. Yeah, you mentioned the names of the individuals that you wrote to. And I was curious, Michael, that you did not write uh, to George Floyd, right. arguably the most high-profile uh, person in, um, in in this list of tragedies. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's a great point, and it's a great eye. You're the first person to ask me that. Well, you know, um, I wrote to Eric Garner because I knew George Floyd was plastered everywhere in people's consciousness on the billboards of their newly awakened, awakened social awareness. <clears throat> but Eric Garner had happened, what, six, seven years before, five, six years before. And even though he was well-known and sparked a movement, I wanted to suggest that there was a parallel and that what happened to George Floyd is happening again. George Floyd is the sequel to Eric Garner. 
And I wanted to make sure by writing the letter to Eric Garner and linking him to George Floyd that they would be tethered in death in a way to remark upon the persistence of a tragic practice among the police that needs to be addressed. So I deliberately did it that way. I mean, this has been going on since slavery and, you know, our awareness changes. But are we really going to have any systemic change this time around, Michael? Yeah, that's the question. Uh, we hope so. We pray so. We work so. Uh, we progress so. We protest so. Um, but it won't happen unless we make it happen. It's not going to happen inevitably. It's not going to happen ineluctably. It's not going to happen by magic. We've got to get out there and make sure we transfer the same energy we had in the streets and protests right after it happened when people were putting black boxes up on Instagram and social media and, you know, tweeting out their solidarity with black America. Here's where the hard work begins. It's like after death. After death, you get people writing you, sending you flowers. Oh, my God, bless you. And I've been an ordained minister for 41 years. The hardest part ain't when people die. It's like two, three months later when everybody's abandoned you and nobody talks about you and nobody remembers you anymore, or, oh yeah, bless her heart. So that's when the real work of mourning transformed to, you know, a kind of engagement uh, with the issues begins. And this is the uh, after, this is the afterglow of that high of protest. This is the after hour of that intense moment of social engagement. And we've got to figure out ways to make it politically salvageable, uh, put it in public policy, have conversations about the police, whether or not we're going to defund them or refund other arenas that need monies de devoted to them. So across the board, uh, it's a matter of us determining to do the unsexy, everyday, normal stuff as opposed to the high-profile protests. Michael, I think it's the case that when we have these reckonings in American history mm -hmm. that it naturally engenders the backlash, mm -hmm. which makes things more difficult. I mean, you think about the 60s and the Freedom Riders, and then, you know, the sheriff comes in with the dogs. Right, and right, then right. there's a, you know, a silent majority with Richard Nixon, and he gets swept into the White House. Um, and it ebbs and flows. And we've got a similar thing going on today where we have this, these murders and then on the other hand, you know, it seems like a lot of white people are outraged by the outrage. <laughs> what can we do to, to mitigate that? Right. And not just the white people, you got former presidents weighing in on uh, <laughs> the methods of resistance to police with President Obama. Um, th that's a great point, the outrage against the outrage. And what we have to acknowledge is the long game. When you're playing a short game, you're you're upset. Oh my God, the long game. Oh, thought I told you that that part's gonna happen. Oh, you you didn't know that? Yeah, yeah, that's part of the process. Stand up, people identify with you, then they resist you. They celebrate you on the way up. Then when you get to the top of the mountain, they're kind of angry. What you ask any star, ask any uh, movie actor or rapper. Social movements are the same way. They're applauded, and then when they get up on top, people are attacking them. The outrage against the outrage. Uh, because what is really happening is that the real way of life is being challenged. When it's the protest, no challenge. 
when it's the celebration of blackness, no challenge. When it settles down, and now, okay, now what are you going to do when your corporate structure? Well, what are you going to do with uh, the policing? How are you going to defund? Well, wait a minute, that that's different. We were with you, we're down with you when it comes to social justice movement, but we ain't really with you when it comes to this kind of strategic difference that needs to be made and the substantive nuts and bolts that need to be dealt with when you are talking about uh, social change at the micro level. Macro sounds good. Oh, yeah. World-changing historical movement. Yes. What are you going to do in your neck of the woods? Hey, now you're getting personal. Now you're, you know, it's like with preachers. Preaching about God and love, that's great, great. Now, what are you going to do about your sin right there where you don't love your brother and sister in your local neighborhood? Hey, you're, you're getting involved in crazy stuff now. So that's the rhythm of social change. The outrage against the outrage is part of the long process. And those who have been involved in social movement understand that there will always be blowback. There will always be a kind of resentment that attaches to the kind of success that any social movement produces. 74 million people voted for Donald Trump. And, you know, let's assume some good intent here that not all those people are racist people. There's an entire spectrum of those people. In fact, a great majority of them would probably characterize themselves as not being racist. Right. And yet they're probably not on the same page as you. Right. How do you talk to them? Well, there are a couple things. First of all, you want to treat all human beings with respect and dignity, even if they disagree with you vehemently. You want to presume good intent and motive, even if you think they're in the embrace of some bigotry or hatred. So you still treat them with decency and respect. Black folk ain't never had a problem with that. <laughs> when I look at the history of this country, black people have dealt with their oppressors in an astonishingly generous and gracious fashion. Even, you know, look, you can go into a church and kill nine black people. And before their bodies are cold, black people will talk about their forgiveness. That's our track record. That's what we do. We ain't seen that on the other side. Where is the comparable expression of white embrace, even of, you know, untoward black forces? Now, if many white people see a parallel, problematically so, between the killing of nine black people in a church and arguing about defunding the police, ludicrous as it may sound, all right, let's just say that's what your parallel is. Where's the graciousness? Where's the, like, what we understand? You know, given the fact that so many black people have died, we certainly want to make good with our social practices and reforming our police departments because, um, you know, it is hurt and harm black people. No such luck. No such love. So as the both-siders argument misses out when both sides are not equally involved. You know, the old story of the pig and the chicken having a conversation going down the road. Let's make a converse, let's make a contribution to breakfast. Fine. All the chicken has to do is lay an egg. The pig has to give up his ass. It's got to die in order to make a contribution. They ain't equal, dog. So, so the reality is, is that we're dealing with pigs and chickens. We're dealing with unparalleled experiences that are demanding a both sides response. I never, and it's problematic. And so, but let me answer your question directly. Yeah. Having said all that, it is important 
for us to understand. We don't have to demonize all the folk on, you know, the other side, 74 million people. But we have to say, come on, y'all. You know what the dude was doing. You know what he was about. So for you to say, oh, I'm not interested in that part. He's an elephant. He's a political elephant. I took the part of uh, lower taxes. I took the part of better for the economy. But what you're saying is, too bad that in the process of me getting that, you have to deal with racism, you have to deal with white nationalism, and you have to deal with white supremacy as the cost of it. Doesn't No, no skin off of my back. Sorry, but that's what it is. At that level, you've got to say, come on, Americans. we got to deal with the consequence of that and your complicity in a system. Whether you are intentionally racist or not, you benefit from that racist system. I want to drill down into this, what I think you're getting at, which I wanted to ask you about, which is false equivalencies. Right. Black lives matter. Hey, right. Michael, blue lives matter. Right. Police have a dangerous job, and, you know, they die in the service of our communities as well, people say. Um, right. how, how do you get people to wrap their brains around the fact that that's not the same thing? And... Um, what let's talk about this defund the police thing. I mean, we we do need the police of some sort, mm -hmm. right? So what's the correct level? That's sort of a two-part question. Yeah, yeah, got you. You know, the last time I checked to two. cite, uh, you know, Nipsey Russell, <laughs> Nipsey Hussle, uh, the uh, fallen rapper, the last time I checked, being born black is not the same as being born blue. Now, maybe I'm wrong. But the philosophers talk about category mistake. Let me see. So when you were born, you had a badge on your little chest. And in place of other things, you had a baton. Come, come now. I don't think so. You weren't born a police person. You were born black. Right? So first of all, get the categories right. Black lives matter. The parallel would be white lives matter. It would be red lives or brown lives. It can't be blue lives. Blue is not an, an ontological category of existence. And so uh, that's the first mistake. Secondly, uh, black people call the police more than anybody. It ain't that we don't dig the police. We don't dig the police showing up and hurting and harming us. Black police, when you go on these drive arounds and so on and so forth, when you hang out with the police, black people are the ones calling the police, right? So it's not that we disregard policing. It's not that we have no respect for policing. We depend upon policing, but that's the problem. We depend upon them so much that when they show up, they often can't make a distinction between criminal and citizen who's not a criminal or not doing criminal things. So that kind of false parallel is deepened by a philosophical uh, category mistake that needs to be addressed and people with you know, better insight ought to say so. Uh, beyond that, it's not that we don't believe blue lives don't matter. Of course, we believe all lives matter. Um, but all lives can't matter until black lives matter, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a paradox and a philosophical contradiction. In order for all lives to matter and not to be an ideal, it has to be practiced on the ground, and we know it ain't so. Um, in terms of policing, again, since black people call the police more than anybody, obviously black people ain't trying to get rid of police but they're trying to get rid of bad policing, right? And, you know, and maybe the president is right about defunding the police, um, but the, the, in terms of the, the nomenclature is more problematic than the reality. Although I didn't hear him deeply reinforce the necessity of 
broad and radical transformation of police, because then that would have redounded negatively on what he did or did not do while in office. Let's just let's just be honest. So he ain't going to be for the defunding of the police altogether, because under his administration, that wasn't going on. Um, but having said that, all defunding of the police means let's reassign monies to different areas. Let's look at where we can put money into, you know, into those people of public safety uh, who are not the police. Police aren't the only people involved in public safety. You got security guards, you got other kinds of forms of uh, protection. So, you know, we could say, let's, let's put more monies into concerns about mental health. And then let's not send a cop out who doesn't have experience in mental health. Let's send one who does, or let somebody Let's send somebody who does therapy for a full-time living uh, and gig and who can deal with this in a far better fashion. That's what defunding means. Take the money from the police and put it over here. Now, we ain't got no problem defunding public education. We ain't got no problem defunding social service. We don't have any problem defunding what poor people get. We don't have any problem defunding educational services that are uh, directed toward poor people. So why all of a sudden you got a problem with defunding the police? Because it's an avatar of a certain kind of unconscious privilege, some of it white, a lot of it legitimate government, a lot of it dominant forces and political parties, as opposed to ordinary citizens who have a beef and a gripe with how things get distributed. Right. And you wonder sometimes, well, defund the police is shorthand, and then it gets appropriated by the other side who say, see, they want to take away zero dollars, because the slogan let's redeploy certain monies to other types of activities. I mean, you know, it's not a slogan. So it, yes, it, it's, it's right, 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 exactly. It can't, and it's not yeah. neat, and it's not, you know, right. so we can come up with something else. But but here's the problem. It's the same as with uh, Colin Kaepernick. You know, if you did it a different way, see, this is how it works. If you're Pharaoh, you can't tell the people of Israel how to protest, <laughs> right? Pharaoh can't dictate the terms of resistance to Pharaoh. So when Pharaoh goes, well, you know, it's not really what I do. Yeah, I know, because what you're doing is plagues. And I mean, you're hurting and harming us. And then God has to send some plagues on you. And then to figure out what the hell's going on. And then you get the, the problem we're dealing with. So... Yeah, Pharaoh ain't going to never be in, char in, in charge of or in support of, of the appropriate fashions of resistance. Yeah, that's a great point that those in power should not or cannot, by definition, dictate that. Right. Let, let me ask you about another power center in America, Michael, which kind of concerns our audience maybe more directly. And you uh, alluded to this, which is corporate America. And, you know, this is tricky stuff because uh, people have good intentions here and there is some action. But I'd love to get your assessment of corporate America's uh, responses in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing. Well, look, it was great in terms of the immediate aftermath. You know, like, hey, this is powerful. You know, we, we got more monies developed toward um, people being brought in. We want to be more diverse. We want to see a broader swath of the universe participate. All that stuff is great. But, you know, when you get down to brass tacks and knuckles, how are you changing your process? Who are your VPs? Who are the people in the room? Who are the people who can green light projects? Who are the people who can have real resources behind your intent to do well? So at that level, it means you got to restructure, rejigger what's going on. It can't just be surface 
or cosmetic. It's got to be more internal. The skeletons, the bones have to be readjusted so that the flesh that is put upon them can look a bit different. And so uh, corporate America has to ask, how are you making so much money at the expense of these very black people, people who are dying and all you're giving back is a small slither, a small percentage? Because be, be rest assured, what the corporations are doing in response to Black Lives Matter and saying we're going to pledge money is barely anything in compensation for the amounts of money that black people put into their pockets, right, across the board. And so that recognition means you got to do a little bit more, whether you're a sports league or whether you are a, uh, you know, financial services business or whether you would clothes or shoes uh, or entertainment, black folk are sustaining you in far higher numbers than you're willing to pay back or give back or recognize in your bottom line budgets for Black Lives Matter. So again, Martin Luther King Jr. said, yo, the, 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 the civil rights bill didn't cost you nothing. Voting rights, that ain't costing you nothing. What I'm asking for now, economic parity. Ah, hey, you don't wanna deal with that. And in the aftermath of his death, housing, the Housing uh, Fair Act, how, the Fair Act for Housing passed, right, 68. That, that, that costs something. That means you got to give up your rapacious, you know, individualism or your rapacious corporate uh, practices when it comes to real estate companies that are redlining and directing black people towards certain neighborhoods and ripping them off and taking their money without giving them the bang on their buck. So all that stuff means it costs something. And until it costs you something as a corporate America, you really ain't doing anything to make a difference in terms of race in America. Have you thought about the people who are leading diversity efforts in corporations, and oftentimes they'll put a diverse person in that role? And then there's some who argue, well, I don't know, actually, to really empower that role, it should be a white male, right? Because mm -hmm. then that person has real skin in the game. Their job is on the line in terms of how much diversity they can bring to the company. Have you thought about that? And what's your take on those kinds of issues? Yeah, it sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds like ideally that would be the case. There are many instances where that's already the case. And what ends up happening is the white guy in charge doesn't really get it because he's so much part of a dominant worldview and mindset that even when he intends good and well, and even when he wants to do good and intends well, and even when he or she, let's say he, understands the moves and gestures of dominant culture, so, you know, ideally then, yes, they would be there ready to go in. They'd be Trojan horses. Hey, we're Trojan horses, and inside of us are all of the black and brown and red and yellow and indigenous people, and we've come in, and we're going to take over. Ah, not so much. Um, so while that sounds like an ideal point, I think we need white men present mm -hmm. uh, on the in the structure, but I think they need to, you know, in order to model what it looks like, they should model their subordination to a person higher on the totem pole than them who happens to be a person of color, right? That's right. the enactment of it at that level. And let me say this one thing and then you come back. So just having diversity itself without equity means nothing. The police people who are responsible or involved, responsible for and involved in the killing of George Floyd, two white guys, a black cop and an Asian cop. Hey, that's diversity. But you're subordinate to a blue rule 
You're subordinate to the thin blue line. You're subordinate to practices that are more powerful than your diversity. Your diversity becomes a footstool and a handmaiden to reproduce the very pathology it is meant to resist. That's the problem when you don't rejigger it with uh, uh, real equitable goals in mind. You mentioned black employees um, and, and, for lack of a better phrase, maybe white bosses. Right, um, right. And, and I'm curious, have you been following the situation in Georgia where the Georgia Senate candidate Kelly Loeffler and her WNBA team, the Atlanta Dream, and the disconnect there where she has not allowed them to wear Black Lives Matter uh, patches, I guess, on their, on their jerseys or maybe even T-shirts? Right. That, how does that strike you? Well, they wore them anyway, didn't they? <laughs> I think I mean they protested against it. They they wore the Jacob Blake gunshot hose in the back in front of their uh, uh, t-shirts and so on to say we ain't agreeing with you. Plus they endorsed her opponent Raphael Warnock. <laughs> so I mean so much for that. Um, yeah, Kelly Leffler and I saw the debate uh, last night or at least Sunday night. Uh, between her and Warnock, and she's, what is she, a robot? I mean, you know, she kept repeating. Now, it could be effective. Uh, the radical liberal, uh, first of all, somebody tell her those are oppositional terms, radicals and liberals. So they are at each other's throats. So when you throw them in together, Kelly, if you got a little inside intelligence on the other side, they're already fighting. See, Joe Biden versus the progressives versus the centrists. I understand, Kelly. Just giving you a little help here in your next debate, okay, Kelly? So the radical liberal activist preacher Raphael Warnock, she said it every time. It sounds robotic to us, but she's getting a message out to the people that is her base. Um, but the beautiful thing about the WNBA players is they say, we're not gonna be bullied. We're not gonna be intimidated. We're gonna stand up. And as much credit as we give to LeBron James, and I dedicate the book to him, as much credit as we give to those black male basketball players and other basketball players in the NBA, the WNBA is way ahead of the curve and doing such tremendous and remarkable stuff that we ought to give them recognition as well. Let's talk about uh, the Biden administration uh, here, Michael. Whether, what should be the priorities? How do you think things have gone so far with his appointees? Yeah, well, look. Joe Biden is such a breath of fresh air, even though he's a 77-year-old, well, now a 78-year-old guy. He's going to be 78 when he gets inaugurated, the oldest president ever. Whatever, dude. I mean, he's doing a great job to me so far. Uh, he, he chose Kamala Harris as his vice president. Let's be honest. He set her up to become the first female president of the United States of America. Who's going to have a better itinerary uh, than her except another former vice president? I guess Trump is going to run again, he claims, in 2024, at least we've heard this. But who is better set up, you know, than, than Kamala Harris? So he did her, he did us a solid, not just now, but in the future. Um, his cabinet appointees, have, it, it seems to me, are more uh, diverse than certainly Trump and maybe even Obama. You know, Clinton was more... Um, I think diverse than Obama. So if we're going to judge it against the first black president, so far so good. Um, and it's not simply a black face in a high place. It's about ideology. It's about politics. It's about understanding. I've already talked about the diversity of the police force that beat up on George Floyd and then ended up uh, killing him. 
you know, diversity in its own right is never enough, even though we must have diversity and equity, diversity and complicated, nuanced perspectives, diversity and a righteous cause. So um, I support what Joe Biden is doing so far. Uh, we should push him. That's the goal and objective of, you know, civil rights organizations. People have to push. People have to push back and say, this is what we want. That's our job. And But with him, there is some leeway. With him, there's some give. With Donald Trump, you ain't pushing him because he don't really give a damn. And you, he don't care. So he, is, he, he, he does what he does, as the brothers in the streets say, irregardless of what you do and regardless of what you say. So uh, it's good to me all the way around. I think someone made irregardless a real word, by the way. Did you see well, that? Hey, I, I, you know, I would love to know that that's true, man. And then if so, give us some credit out here in the street. <laughs> <laughs> and last question, Michael, and, and let's talk about wealth and income inequality disproportionately affecting people of color. And um, should the economic recovery um, measures be targeted, therefore, to these people? And if so, how can that be done? It's a tough one. Yeah, well, yeah, they, they definitely need to be targeted toward the less you know, fortunate and the have-nots versus the have-gots. They're all kind of, see, but you know, you got to get beyond the obsession with the socialism. Dr. King said, we got socialism for the rich, and free enterprise for the poor, <laughs> right? The ones who are really getting socialism and communism are those up at the top who are distributing their cash among themselves. There are many redistributive mechanisms to those who are beneath. Look at our housing policies. If, if housing is the entree into the middle class, that's a huge mechanism of economic wealth that can be measured and we can do stuff about opening up housing markets, making them more equitable, standing with the Supreme Court saying that certain practices is not just the, the consequence of it. It used to be, I mean, the intent. Like if you had an intent to harm somebody with housing or be prejudiced toward them, okay, you were wrong. But if the consequence was that they were still harmed, so what? The Supreme Court said, no, you got to look at consequences as well. So outcomes are as just important, just as important as intent. That's one way. Another way is these educational disparities. If there is a correlation roughly hewn between what kind of education you have and what kind of money you make, then it would behoove us to enforce certain educational practices that pay attention to the least of these. And if the tax base is the determinant for education in so many arenas, then the government, which has been a beneficiary of and it, you know, of a kind of uh, you know, Jim Crow approach and apartheid, racially speaking, in the past to, you know, fill its coffers for white education versus uh, black ones, then we owe some money toward those people who are at the bottom of the totem pole and then figuring out what kind of jobs uh, and job training could help black and indigenous and Latinx people uh, to get higher up on the totem pole. Those are a few things that can be done. And stop the voter suppression. That would be a huge thing that now they, those things get fought in courts, but they can also, the attorney general can have engagement with these issues on local municipalities. And finally, in terms of policing, you know, under Obama, Eric Holder and then Loretta Lynch, but especially Eric Holder was talking about these consent decrees and looking at these police departments. And it's another thing to be done again, to look at them because police departments are extracting all kinds of monies Look at Ferguson 
uh, Missouri, all kind of monies from the local people, making their coffers fill while depleting the resources of poor people on the ground. Those are a few ways and few things we can do to make sure that we can target those monies toward the most vulnerable. All right, author Michael Eric Dyson, author of the new book, Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. I think there's a few copies right there behind you. <laughs> there are a few back there. Check them out. If you can't take mine, go buy your own. <laughs> That's it. So much more to talk about. I hope we get a chance to visit with you sometime again soon. Thank you so much for visiting with us though today. Thanks for having me on, my friend. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Sirwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Sirwer.